0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's your
1: Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. One in five car crashes in Iowa are caused by distracted driving. Coming up later this half hour, an Iowa man who was nearly killed by a distracted driver. Also, Jason Clayworth of Axios on Des Moines' $50 million water nitrate fix-it plan. But first, our news this week here in Iowa started with that shooting in Des Moines on Monday at a downtown nonprofit that serves at-risk youth. uh, It's called Starts Right Here. It left two young men dead and the founder of the program hospitalized with serious injuries. Francesca Block is with us, a breaking news reporter for the Des Moines Register. Hi, Francesca.
2: Hi.
1: Recount, please, what happened?
2: So police said on Monday afternoon that 18-year-old Preston Walls Walk into a common area at Starts Right Here, which is a nonprofit that provides education and other resources to at-risk youth in Des Moines. The organization's founder, William Holmes, who also goes by the name Will Keats, tried to walk Walls out, but then Walls started shooting at the two students in the common area, a criminal complaint said. So these students, 18-year-old Gianni Dameron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr, were killed in the shooting, and Holmes sustained serious injuries.
1: How is Holmes now? Do we know?
2: So Holmes is continuing to recover. Uh, he underwent surgery following the shooting, and he was in the hospital as of Tuesday night. Um, but even in his condition, he's been pretty adamant that he wants to continue his work helping at youth. His family released a statement on Tuesday affirming his commitment to continuing his anti-violence work.
1: Tell us more about the victims of this gun violence.
2: So 18-year-old Gianni Damron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr were both uh, residents of Des Moines. And their family said at a press conference on Wednesday that they were both really great boys. They were best friends who enjoyed going to school together and were really working towards getting their high school degrees. Um, they also said that they were people who really lit up every room that they walked into. Many remembered Carr as a talented rapper who took care of his younger siblings, and Dameron as somebody who often made them smile and always looked out for other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, in the police statements this week, um, they, uh, Preston Walls charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and one count of criminal gang participation. Um, The spokesperson for the Des Moines Police Department said the shooting was targeted and stemmed from a gang dispute. Now, family members of the victims took issue with that characterization. You wrote about this. Uh, What's the controversy here?
2: So just as you said, the families disputed the characterization that their sons, their nephews, their grandsons were gang members. They did say that the boys made mistakes, but they were working really hard at starts right here to better themselves and to set themselves up for a strong future. Um, The families also called for an end to what they called senseless gun violence, particularly against young people like Dameron and Carr.
1: Yeah, Uh, the police spokesperson did say, and I'm quoting from your article, um, they said, we share our support with the families whose lives are forever changed by these senseless crimes. But then the spokesperson added um, evidence of the victim's gang involvement is, quote, a critical piece that, quote, will be critical in a successful prosecution. Tell us a little bit more uh, about the reaction there in the Des Moines community, also family and friends, to uh, this senseless violence.
2: Obviously, the families are heartbroken um, about the loss of their loved ones, Carr in particular it was actually soon to be a father um, and so his um, expectant, um, the expectant mother of his child actually spoke at a press conference Wednesday remembering him and so there really is a lot of loss, a, a great feeling of heartbreak within the community but there's also a sense of people trying to come together. Um, I, in particular, the, a football coach for Rashad Carr, Garrett Boone, spoke at a press conference on Wednesday And he also called for an end to senseless gun violence. And he told all of the young kids in the community, he said, if you need anything, come to me. I want to help you. And so there really is this strong feeling of community, of coming together to try to overcome this violence and move forward.
1: Yeah. Before we go, what's next for the alleged shooter, Preston Walls?
2: Walls is set to appear in court next week, actually, for his previous charge. So prior to the shooting, he actually was on supervised release for a different charge involving a firearm. So he has a court hearing for that case this coming week, and we'll continue to see how the case plays out in court.
1: Okay, Francesca Block, breaking news reporter for the Des Moines Register. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, remember a few years ago uh, when Des Moines Water Works was in the news quite frequently uh, over the course of a couple years due to that lawsuit over high nitrate levels in the Raccoon River? Well, that nitrate problem... Hasn't gone away. It has uh, costing millions of dollars to mitigate those ag pollutants in order to have suitable drinking water in the area. Uh, Des Moines Waterworks back in the news. Jason Clayworth of Axios Des Moines has been covering it uh, this week. Hi, Jason. Hello, Ben. Your headline is Des Moines. Des Moines' $50 million water nitrate fix-it plan. <laughs> what is the plan, and and remind us of the problem.
3: Absolutely. So uh, nitrates, of course, are uh, are uh, naturally occurring compounds, but when they are at high levels, uh, they cause some harmful effects, uh, in, including cancers and, and various problems with uh, with births and in both humans and animals. And so there are levels that they must be maintained uh, to avoid that. And and Des Moines Waterworks has wrestled with this for years. Uh, what's happening now is that the, the Waterworks facility is considering construction of wells north of the metro uh, that would be used as natural filtration systems to help lower those levels in times of of, uh, of high, high, high levels of nitrates.
1: Okay, so help me understand this. The, the thinking here is that when you get water from a well, uh, that water hasn't had a chance to naturally be filtered through whatever layers in the ground where it gets down to the the whatever water is where the well is going. But if you get it from the river, it hasn't had that chance. Am I understanding that correctly? Uh,
3: that that's correct. The um, much of the water from Des Moines Waterworks comes from the Des Moines and Raccoon Rivers, and that water has it has a lot of runoff from northern counties, a lot of farm ground. Uh, and Waterworks has for years uh, alleged that, that these counties are responsible for, uh, for its higher levels of, of nitrates in, the wa- in those waters. And so what it's trying to do is to, to use these wells to, to, to use a different source of water that has, has lower levels. It comes from uh, under, underground sources. It's a natural filtration type system Uh, And and we're talking about massive uh, amounts of water, up to 25 million uh, gallons a day that these wells potentially could produce. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: So we have these facilities, this planned facility, $50 million to to have a nitrate fix to uh, mitigate it a little bit.
3: That's correct. Uh, And, you know, the the, the plan is that uh, potentially, if if this plan goes forward, uh, the, the plan would be to dilute water so that it would—the uh, water that's taken from, uh, you know, it's the, the regular sources, the regular spots in the river, uh, that, that it would dilute uh, the water so that it would be at levels that are ex- acceptable for human health.
1: Yeah. And as you point out in your, in your article, um, we have other problems associated with this. Uh, blo- uh, algae blooms uh, in our waterways as well. I guess the natural question to ask here is— uh, why, uh, why not reduce the nitrates from their sources rather than uh, do the costly exercise of cleaning it up later?
3: Well, Des Moines Waterworks has previously argued that, that that should be the case. Uh, th- as you mentioned in, in the intro, uh, the utility has sued some, uh, some of Iowa's counties, uh, arguing that its drainage districts are, are funneling high levels of, of nitrates. Into the Raccoon River, its key water source, uh, and and that was unsuccessful. That was ultimately thrown out, and uh, the, the water water board uh, chose not to appeal. Uh, it's taken a different route. This approach now is is to find other ways to clean the water. It it does have a nitrate filtration uh, plant that it runs regularly. That's very expensive. Uh, 10, 000, up to $10,000 a day or above, uh, and but the capacity of that uh, in the future is uh, is limited, and the the waterworks uh, board is thinking beyond uh, you know the next uh, 10, 15 years out, and and trying to get ahead of of the problem.
1: Yeah. And we, we should point out in closing, Jason, um, that uh, this is not an isolated uh, problem to the Des Moines area, the Raccoon River, the Des Moines River. Uh, just a few days ago on this program, I spoke with Jared Strong of, of Iowa Capital Dispatch and, uh, you know, uh, communities in other communities in Iowa facing these uh, nitrate problems, how to deal with it, and, and, and so forth. So uh, what, what you're reporting on here in the Des Moines area uh, is, you know, a, a problem of greater Iowa and the greater Midwest, for sure, right?
3: Absolutely. And it, and this goes to the Gulf of Mexico, these waters, and it has caused a great deal of, of problems. Uh, you mentioned the algae blooms. This is, this is a widespread issue, not just centered on, on Des Moines.
1: All right, Jason Clayworth, reporter with Axios Des Moines. Thank you so much, Jason, to tell us about Des Moines' $50 million water nitrate fix-it plan. Uh, We'll see how that turns out. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. We know it's a real hazard, but many of us do it anyway, driving with a cell phone in our hand. The Iowa State Patrol says distracted driving causes one in five car crashes. This week, an Iowa Senate panel advanced legislation that would only allow hands-free use of cell phones while driving. Uh, This, as lawmakers continue a years-long effort to strengthen the state's distracted driving laws and and make our roads uh, safer. Joining me now in the studio an Iowa man who was nearly killed in 2019 by what we can only conclude it was a distracted driver, possibly using a cell phone. Uh, Welcome to Guillermo Romano Ibarra. Uh, Guillermo is a a University of Iowa student in the Medical Scientist Training Program. Guillermo, welcome. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Guillermo, take us back to the summer of 2019 um, when this fateful day happened. So... I was an avid cyclist. I really enjoyed
5: riding my bike outside of Iowa City. On August twenty eighth, 2019, I got off work. I had ridden RAGBRAI that year and had some mechanical issues, so my bike had been in the shop for about two weeks, and I was really excited to get back out. And on that day, I went, and I picked up my bike, and I set out on a beautiful ride. It was a beautiful day. Um, I went south out of Iowa City, and there is a small stretch where you have to jump onto um, Highway 22 for about a half mile. And on that stretch, um, you know, it's a highway, cars are moving fairly quickly, Um, there's not a great shoulder. So you're trusting that the drivers will see you. And give you enough space to have everybody get through that safely. Unfortunately, that particular day, about halfway through this segment, um, I was hit by a car that was going 61 miles an hour. From behind. From behind. Full on? Full on. So they hit my, um, well, I was on the right side of the lane, hugging the shoulder, and the The driver has said that she didn't see me. And so um, it even, was... Even though you were all lit up with lights. I was lit up. I had lights. Um, and the sun would have been to my back. So she wasn't blinded and there wasn't any glare. And so this was a case where she just didn't notice that there was a cyclist there. In fact, when she hit me she thought she had hit a deer. And so um, she actually pulled over to check on the animal and see if she needed to call um, the police to put down the animal. Yeah. And so she found out that it was actually a person, and that was me, and I'd been riding my bike. And so she didn't realize what she had hit. So, um, you know, I would say that falls into this idea of being a distracted driver, and I'm not entirely sure what was the cause of the distraction, um, the police investigation showed that there had been some cell phone use um, about a minute or two before she hit me. They'd been um, there was another person in the car, so it was unclear as to who was using the cell phone. But ultimately, the the result was the same. The result was. Um, that she didn't notice me in the yeah. road. And and
1: didn't break at all, it seems. That's right. As a medical scientist, you're very familiar with human anatomy. Tell us, how serious were your injuries? You did, in fact, come very close to death. Yeah, and so it was, um, I learned after
5: the fact that the um, uh, first responders had considered calling an air ambulance, so a helicopter to come, and they'd been, Trying to figure out where they were going to have the helicopter land. Ultimately, Lone Tree Fire Department decided to um, drive me back to the University of Iowa. And when we got to the University of Iowa, um, you know, my, the back of my, essentially where my buttocks is, was torn up. It looked like a shark bite or a saber toothed tiger swipe. Uh, which is where the car had hit me. And so that's on the surface. That was kind of the most dramatic one. There was a lot of blood. There was um, stuff everywhere. But then I was also, my pelvis had been broken, and then my spine was broken too. And so the um, they cleared out some trauma surgeon. They were two trauma surgeons. They cleared their schedules for the next day, and then they... Started
1: working on me. Yeah, you've had a long, um, a long path to rehab. Uh, you've come into our studio. I see you still use a crutch. Um, nearly four years after the cr- uh, yep. crash, describe your level of disability now.
5: So right now, I have um, either a partial spinal cord or a peripheral um, plexus injury, but mostly what it affects is my right leg. And so when I was first in the hospital. We didn't know if this was strictly orthopedic or if it would be um, a full spinal cord injury. And so we are kind of somewhere in between where um, I do have function of my legs, but I don't have full control or um, I would say I'm not the most agile person. And so it's it's a lot of trying to learn how to compensate and trying to make your everyday life as normal as possible. And so I still use a wheelchair at work. Um, I have a hard time standing um, in place. and um, So anytime that if I go to Costco, um, if I go to an airport, if I'm at work where it requires moving around standing, basically anytime that you would say, I'm going to wear my comfy shoes today is when I would take my wheelchair instead. Mm-hmm. And then mostly for my everyday life, I can get away with um, using a crutch or
1: doing some walking even without it. Yeah. And this this level of disability is something for your foreseeable future?
5: Yeah, um, unfortunately. And so there is, you know, I, I um, as you know, I do some swimming and I do a lot of exercise. And so... One of the concerns is that right now I have the luxury of um, a being fairly young. Uh, I'm in my uh, early thirties, and so I'm I'm still fairly functional, and I um, you know I can compensate fairly well for a lot of the challenges that I have. Um, one of the concerns would be that um, I can basically cheat my way out right now, and whether or not um, I'll be able to continue um,
1: compensating for for my disability. Mm-hmm. So you are just one case. you escaped with your life. Um, many others, not only in Iowa, but across the country, because of distracted driving, have not escaped with their lives. That's we right. have family members uh, missing loved ones uh, because of um, well, self- cell phone use behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know whether what exactly were the circumstances in this case. Uh, but we certainly know there are many cases out there where cell co- cell phone use is directly tied mm-hmm. to uh, fatalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts, given your background and your disability now because of this crash, uh, to continued efforts by Iowa lawmakers to ban handheld cell phone use while driving?
5: Yeah, I I applaud the effort. Um, I think there there are a number of different things that I think we should do to make our um, road use safer. Um, so obviously, um, increasing the penalties or changing the, the way that we um, essentially punish people who use their cell phones is, is one way. You know, you're trying to cause deterrence. Um, and another thing that I've tried to push for and, and um, advocate for would be uh, better roads, having shoulders, having better infrastructure. And and so I think, you know, I don't think that there's going to be a magic bullet that will make our roads safer. I don't think this is the only bill um, that would, you know, this isn't going to fix, suddenly fix everything. But I think it's an important step and I think it's an important part of uh,
1: making roads safer for everybody. As you know, I'm sure um, a lot of the laws that could pay it passed in Iowa or elsewhere are due to personal stories, testimony before lawmakers uh, that really make it clear that this is not just a statistic. These are—you are a real person. Your life has been dramatically altered by this. Could you see yourself giving testimony uh, before the Iowa legislature?
5: Yeah, um, and and I've I've been interested in doing that before. Um, another interest of mine would be um, I've. Had the opportunity to meet the driver who hit me. Um, And I know that this has impacted her life as well. And she's had, um, you know, a lot of emotional challenges um, kind of wrapping her head around what happened. Uh, And so one of my goals would be if if both of us could come together and, and advocate for safer roads. And I think. You know, she, in some ways, um, is is a victim of her own distraction, right? And she has to live with this now. And if we can come together and say, hey, look, this isn't just about the pedestrians or the cyclists or the, you know, what we would call vulnerable road users mm-hmm. um, on the road, you know, because this will also affect the drivers who are um, on that road.
1: Yeah. Guillermo Romano Ibarra, thank you for coming in and updating us uh, on your recovery. Uh, Guillermo, a survivor for a near-fatal bike car crash in 2019, likely caused by a driver distracted by who knows what, a cell phone uh, would be uh, one uh, good guess. Uh, Guillermo, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate it. And we'll be back after a short break. It's your Friday News Buzz here on River to River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Stay tuned.
0: Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.
2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. While nationally, Democrats did stave off that predicted red wave in the November midterms, here in Iowa... Democrats took a a real beating up and down the ballot. Uh, This weekend, the Iowa Democratic Party will elect a new chairperson. Clay Masters joins me now, IPR senior political reporter and Morning Edition host. Hi, Clay. Good afternoon, Ben. Now, as you pointed out in your reporting, whoever is elected will have a lot on their plate
0: to to try to rebuild the state party. Uh, Tell us what the priorities are. Well, I mean, number one, you alluded to it, that there was a definitely a red wave for Republicans within the state of Iowa. It didn't mirror what happened nationally. But we're just seeing a decade of challenges for Iowa Democrats. I mean, going back to 2014, when uh, there was that race between Bruce Braley and Joni Ernst, ever since 2014, uh, Democrats have had a really hard time winning elections. And no finer period was put on that sentence than what came during the midterm election when uh, Democrats just took a beating up and down the ticket.
1: Okay, the current chair, outgoing chair, Ross Wilburn, a new one to be elected uh, this weekend. How does that
0: fit into this picture? So Ross Wilburn, uh, a state lawmaker from Ames, a very even-keeled politician in how he kind of presents himself, uh, especially compared to his Republican counterpart, Jeff Kaufman. Uh, Wilburn's on his way out. He uh, followed a long line of chairs of the Iowa Democratic Party, uh, he took uh, over a, a couple of years ago following former Marshalltown representative Mark Smith. Uh, then he had taken over for Troy Price, who was in the post on that disastrous 2020 Iowa caucus night. I mean, whoever gets this job will definitely have their work cut out for them. Uh, This is a a meeting that's going to take place with the Iowa Democratic Party State Central Committee, where members on that committee will vote. There are different caucuses within the Iowa Democratic Party that will make their voices heard, and they will, at the end of this meeting tomorrow, uh, have some kind of a decision on who's going to lead this party moving forward. Mm -hmm. Do you have any names? Do we know who might be nominated and run? Yeah. So the the names that we've seen ahead of time are Rita Hart. Uh, She's a former state senator from rural Wheatland, a teacher. Uh, Listeners of IPR are probably familiar uh, from a couple of years ago, the months long saga of that 2020 congressional race when she was running against now Representative Marionette Miller Meeks. Ben, you remember she lost by just six oh, yes. votes oh, and yes. there, there were recounts upon recounts. Uh, she also ran for lieutenant governor that post back in 2018 on Fred Hubble's unsuccessful uh, governor's bid. And then there's Bob Krauss. He's from Burlington. He has run for a, a lot of different posts. Uh, he had a short run there for the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate, but uh, he ultimately did not run in that primary. He's also a former state lawmaker and uh, he's also the president of the Veterans National Recovery. I believe he's been on River to River a few times talking about uh, veterans issues over the years. And then you have kind of a newcomer to the party, Brittany Ruland. Uh, She's relatively new to Iowa, uh, but brings her campaign skills to the job, I would say. Uh, Most notably, she managed the campaign of West Des Moines State Senator Sarah Trone Garriott. That was kind of the only bright spot for Democrats in the last midterm election. You might remember redistricting led Senator Tron Garriott to have to move so she wouldn't run against another Democrat. Uh, she moved to a, dem- a district where she faced another incumbent who happened to be the Senate president, uh, former Senate President Jake Chapman, and then uh, Trone Garriott beat Chapman. But I should say, Ben, uh, I've covered these votes before, and it's not unusual for uh, a Democrat in the Central Committee to just nominate someone uh, on the spot there. So there could be some surprise nominations brought forward tomorrow. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, zooming out to the the big picture that you alluded to earlier the the problems iowa democrats have had for well nearly a decade you mentioned the 2014 election i wonder is there expect some kind of real soul searching uh, a common understanding among iowa democrats about what's not working for them in this state or is there disagreement about why dems have lost favor among iowa voters
0: A lot of the conversations I've had with Democrats, uh, maybe former leaders within the party or people who were unhappy with the party the last couple couple of cycles, um, they kind of vary. I mean, obviously, there's a problem in rural Iowa connecting with voters. Um, I mean, you think back to the uh, 2018 election when uh, Fred Hubble was running against uh, Governor Kim Reynolds, and it was the 4th District, a a very rural district a solid Republican uh, part of the state that really helped Reynolds get that first uh, a win on under her, under her belt. And there are concerns about rural issues. And then th- there just seems to be a lot of frustration put forward about just investment in the candidates who are running. And maybe uh, I think we're going to talk about it in a minute, but just the amount of attention that the Iowa Democratic Party has paid to trying to keep the Iowa caucuses first in the presidential nominating calendar. So, you know, they're going to be electing a chair and I would expect this meeting to be pretty long. Um, it's a virtual meeting, which you know, things that are on Zoom, all, always take a little bit longer. But I think there's also just going to be I'll, I'll be listening for some kind of, uh, you know, just just uh, I'll be I'll be listening for some kind of a cohesion of, of a message that people want to get forward because I think that there's a lot of frustration within the party because they have not been winning elections over the last decade.
1: Yes. And Clay, let's do end with the latest on the caucus battle for the Iowa Democratic Party. You know, as far as we know, listening to news and in your reports, uh, it's it's an ongoing thing. But have the Iowa Democrats uh, lost the first in the nation status?
0: Well, and that is going to be something that uh, whoever this chair is going to be is going to have to figure out what kind of a, a, a fight they want to put forward. I mean, The train was leaving the station a year ago for Iowa Democrats holding on to their place. Uh, States like Iowa had delegations in D.C. making their case to the panel that sets the calendar. That was over the summer. And I I mean, that train, to go on with this metaphor, has only been picking up pace. And I mean, if this new chair wants to get on that train, they're going to have to be pretty good at uh, running a full throated sprint. Um, in, In December, you might remember President Biden wrote a letter saying he wanted the order to go South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada on the same day and then Georgia and Michigan. This rules and bylaws committee was was pretty quick in moving forward with that. Uh, no votes from the members from New Hampshire. And then Scott Brennan, uh, the member from Iowa. Well, now there's a, a couple uh, moving pieces here, Ben. The DNC committee voted to extend that waiver for New Hampshire and Georgia to make it so they can go in that early window because there's been challenges with their Republican governors in those states. Um and then this creates some some challenges, partly because Republicans are still moving forward with the, the status quo calendar of Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and then uh, South Carolina. So these members approved uh, during this meeting this week uh, th- this calendar for the DNC to vote on it on February 4th. But there was kind of this pile on uh, with New Hampshire, lots of frustration uh, over Democrats in that state not being happy with the DNC and President Biden for moving them to second in line, uh, and and if there's any window for Iowa, I guess if if this new party chair wants to make that fight, it seems like to me. It would be just to kind of sit back and watch what's going on with New Hampshire and then to remind the committee, that you know, to say, hey, we've got a plan. You know, I, I've been on this show in the past talking about how the Democratic uh, Party has proposed some major changes to the Iowa caucuses themselves mm-hmm. to try to make them more inclusive. Yeah. And that seems kind of like a a, a Hail Mary uh, maybe that still would be in their pocket. But that's a decision whoever gets this post is going to have to, to make. And I could inside baseball talk about these rules for the rest of News <laughs> Buzz. <laughs> All right. You'll need to save some energy. You've got a lot of work cut out for you tomorrow, Saturday, covering this.
1: We'll look forward to your coverage, Clay Masters. Uh, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Ben. And we're coming to the end of this news buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's look back at activity this week at the State House, and also have a quick look forward to what's ahead with Katerina Sestarik, IPR State Government Reporter. Hi,
4: Katerina. Hi, Ben.
1: Well, a big week at the legislature. Let's recall it earlier uh, this week. Governor Reynolds signing into law her signature school choice legislation. After that, uh, legislation blitzed through both chambers in a very late night session. Uh, remind us, how will this new law change Iowa's K-12 through educational landscape?
4: Yeah, well, it's just very notable that the governor signed her number one priority into law just two weeks after introducing it that moved very fast and it'll make major changes to the state's education system Um, it'll start phasing in for the school year that begins this fall and then in the fall of 2025 All families that send their kids to private school can get a tax-funded account to pay for private school tuition and other educational expenses, and it'll be the same amount of money that the state spends per student on public school students. Um, So that's expected to be about $7,600 for the first year. Um, Eventually, estimates show that that'll cost the state about $345 million a year when it's fully phased in. Um, and the bill would also make some changes to um, how teach, how public schools can use funding that right now is restricted for only certain uses. It, it says that um, they can use that now to raise teacher salaries if they're not using it for those other uses. Uh, and it also would give $1,200 to public schools for each student that attends a private school that lives in their district. Um, and so those are kind of the main aspects of the bill. Um, it's very, it's very um, broad. Not, not many states, if any, have, have a program like this that will apply to all students in, in private school.
1: Yeah, and uh, this did pass, but there, was, uh, there were Republican lawmakers who voted against it. Remind us, uh, and of course all the Democrats, remind us what opponents uh, fear from this change.
4: Right. Um, Democrats were very concerned that this will um, prevent public schools from getting the funding that they need to function properly and educate public school students. Um, and they're just concerned about um, how this will affect rural schools. There, There's just a very wide range of concerns, too, about how um, private schools can you know, pick and choose who they admit, especially now if there's going to be more demand for private education. And then um, there's also no cap on how much private schools can raise their tuition. So there's concerns about those that you know maybe right now cost three or four thousand dollars a year might see that all mm-hmm. these families now have more than seven thousand dollars a year to spend and might be raising raising that tuition.
1: Yeah. Okay. let's talk about something uh, that we'll address Monday for the full hour uh, with uh, the two of us hosting uh, lawmakers uh, uh, proposals to change public assistance uh, for those on low income. Uh, Tell us about uh, those bills.
4: Right. So this is a bill that uh, moved forward yesterday um, in a House subcommittee with Republicans supporting it and the Democrat on the panel opposing it. Um, It would establish new limits on assets that Iowans could hold while receiving food assistance, which is also known as SNAP. Um, So one of the issues that advocates bring up is that um, under this bill, families that have more than one car could be at risk of losing um, their food assistance. And that's something they say, well, if both parents are working and they need to get places, that doesn't make much sense. Um, And then The state would also ask the federal government for permission to enforce work work requirements for some Medicaid recipients. This is something Mm -hmm. um, Republican lawmakers have considered several times and have never passed. Um, And the bill would direct the state to do additional verification of Iowans' eligibility for SNAP and Medicaid. And then there's a part of the bill that's gotten a lot of attention recently um, that says it would restrict... Um, what foods people can get with food assistance to a list for um, a very specialized program for women, infants, and children. That list does not include fresh meat, Um, but this is a portion that Republicans have already said they do not plan to move forward, and they instead want to ask the federal government for permission to just ban candy and soda.
1: Okay. As mentioned, uh, we'll look into that in depth on Monday on this program. Quickly, before we say goodbye in the final minute here, Katerina, um, you're reporting a a bill advancing this week having to do with medical malpractice. Tell us about it.
4: Right. So this is a bill that's also one of um, the governor's priorities, and um, when someone Wins a lawsuit for medical malpractice, they can get a payout in economic damages, which is like for lost wages and and for medical costs, and then they can get non-economic damages, which is for things like pain and suffering. And so this bill would prevent juries from awarding more than $1 million in non-economic damages um, to victims of medical malpractice. Um, And so medical providers have been pushing for this, saying that it's contributing to high insurance rates and preventing health care providers from wanting to work in the state. Um, And then there are um, lawyers and victims of medical malpractice, on the other hand, who say that that basically the facts of their cases support getting those large payouts. That, you know, you have things like um, one of the biggest stories last year was a Baby that was injured during birth and will never be able to, you know, live on its own or without 24-hour medical care. So things like mm-hmm. that, um, people say, are just worth millions and millions of dollars sometimes.
1: Okay, Katarina Sistara keeping her eyes on the State House for us. IPR State Government Reporter Katarina. Um, we'll talk on Monday. Thanks again. Thanks, Ben. And that just about does it for this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this very last Friday of January 2023. I can hardly believe we've already dashed through the first month of the new year. Mark Simmet joins me now to groove us into the weekend. Hi, Mark. Hi, Ben. You've got a couple of tunes to, to mellow us out, chill us out. I don't know, pick your verb, <laughs> <laughs> but you always, you always uh, seem to do it. You folks at, at Studio One, what do you got? Uh, maybe a couple of tunes just to give you some listening pleasure. I don't know if how much it'll chill you out. But, uh, yes, first up we have the Scottish band Bell & Sebastian. They've been around since 1996, formed in Glasgow. Uh, Stuart Murdoch is the leader of this band. They've released many albums and just had one not that long ago in 2022. Quick follow-up is just out. It's called Late Developers from Bell & Sebastian. This was going to be the album that would launch their North American tour, but Stuart Murdoch has some health issues, and they've had to cancel the entire tour. So uh, all we have is this new album, which is a pretty good one, and here's a song called I Don't Know What You See In Me.
2: Did you listen to my breath? Because there's something in thee.